This week, President Trump was impeached. Big Finance actually gave us some hope, even as COP25 in Madrid staggered to a near-fatally disappointing conclusion, and gorillas made a comeback, putting a smile on all our faces. All this and more in This Week in Sustainability. Hi, I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. There's lots of news to get to this week, so let's get to it. Well, This Week in Sustainability cannot avoid the impeachment of President Trump. Now, without dwelling on the well-deserved verdict, it must be said that this guy poses one of the greatest dangers to humanity and millions of other life forms on this planet. As a Canadian, I hesitate to say I understand what's going on in the United States. But what on earth led Americans to accept such a disgraceful and shameless man as their president? How can his own supporters condone his power? Even as they voice support for him, he pulls away benefits such as food stamps, Medicare, and other life-saving benefits that disproportionately help them. Well, that's hard to comprehend. Yet it's not for foreigners, like me, to say how America should run its affairs. If they don't mind automatic weapon-wielding maniacs killing their children, well, that's their business. If they're okay with leaving new graduates under massive lifelong debt, well, that's their right. But America's impact on climate, biodiversity, and international affairs, these, among a few other issues, affect the entire world. So Trump's actions and influence in these areas, well, that does concern me, particularly his aggressive denial of and intentional actions to worsen climate change. In an exhaustive article outlining Trump's administration's reversal of environmental regulations, the Pulitzer Prize-winning nonprofit, nonpartisan, Inside Climate News found him to be promoting unfettered oil, natural gas, and coal development, trying to restore King Coal to its throne, suppressing climate and related science, undermining clean energy development and energy efficiency, and trying to undercut California's world-leading climate progress. We should also be concerned about Trump's licensing of violence and his affliction with science and evidentiary truth. Trust in policymaking based on science is clearly under attack. But this cannot be permitted, as it's being copied in other jurisdictions around the world, given license, so to speak. Violent crimes are on the rise again across the United States, despite a 20-year decline to record lows. Evidence points to a correlation between words at the top and actions on the ground. It's for these reasons, if not for President Trump's sheer lack of dignity and decency, we should each pray to our own God or gods that the president be removed from office now, or at least in the 2020 election. As to the members of the GOP, surely, America, you can find representatives with more moral courage in a country of 330 million people to uphold the conservative values I may not agree with, but those values that were once pursued with a dignified vigor and a willingness to compromise. As a postscript, it was to my great spiritual relief today that Christianity Today, a leading evangelical magazine, proclaimed, mostly for the right reasons, that Trump surely should be removed from office. Well, moving on, COP25 limped, it staggered, it crawled to an inconclusive frustrated and frustratingly disappointing close this week. 
Well, these are just a few of the descriptors journalists use to characterize the end of COP25 in Madrid. A wounded bird stuck in oil-saturated sand may be a more apt analogy. But never mind, the conference was not really expected to produce great breakthroughs. After a truly inspiring year of Fridays for the Future and Extinction Rebellions, however, there was at least the hope of a stronger will for more forceful collective action. The mainstream press reported that the summit hit an impasse. That it was not. Rather, it was a stunning and near-complete fail. The playing out of a Kaskiev drama where things end badly through the actor's overcomplication of the plot and their fanatical, singular devotion to absurd conditions. The alternative media got closer to the truth, noting negotiators simply caved to craven vested interests concerned less about climate than their own status quo. Well, here's what we know. Negotiating the details of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement on both carbon trading and carbon markets well, that was punted to COP26 in 2020. Carbon markets, seen by many as the most efficient tool for reining in emissions, proved for the second year in a row just too complex to resolve. Well, I kind of get that. The buying and selling of carbon, well, it's not as simple as putting a lump of coal in the Amazon box and sending it on its way. Carbon markets require the means to measure and verify emissions generally and emissions savings projects specifically. They also need a global carbon registry, a global trading mechanism, and much, much more. Well, carbon markets are a bit complicated to explain here. If you want to take a carbon market 101, go to the most excellent primer at carbonmarketwatch.org. So yeah, like they are a bit complicated carbon markets, but they're not that complex. Think about it. Finance folks have created trillion dollar markets for derivative securities like forward commodity trading, hedging options, etc., etc. So don't tell me a carbon market can't be had and can't be had cheap and quick had big emitters, nations, and companies focused on the building of markets instead of finding loopholes and ways to slice out carbon ambitions in the current and already inadequate targets, said the Climate Action Network in Europe. Now, some progress actually might have been made. Uh, simply put, the status quo is still more comfortable for the big emitters. Willfully or not, they pulled a Trump. They used complexity to distract negotiators from actual market building. So let us send a warm and getting warmer thanks to Brazil, Australia, Canada, the United States, China, as well as a bunch of big corporate representatives for all that cheer. Three degrees of warming, here we come. Anyways, another issue that we need to take a hold of here is uh, loss and damage considerations, also known as climate justice. Why should poor and small countries with growing deserts or exposed shorelines pay for the problem that they hardly contributed to? Besides asking them to fix the climate crisis, or at least the part that's affecting them, is like tying the legs of a grade two soccer team together for a match against Manchester United. Too much? Okay, then West Ham. But I think you get the point. In an attempt at fair play, the United Nations created the Warsaw International Mechanism around 2007. Uh, that mechanism uh, is now worked into the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, and seeks to have big emitter countries help poor, smaller, low emission countries avoid choking under sand dunes or sinking underwater. 
during COP25. Big emitter countries made it pretty clear, though, that they only kind of sort of, no, not really want to participate in the Warsaw International Mechanism. They assure us, however, uh, that they'll pay, but voluntarily and on their own terms, unbound by international rules. Anyways, The Nation, the magazine, The Nation, nailed the notice to the wall the best it could have been nailed when it implied that the summit took a gap year from making any imminent impact on the climate crisis. It identified four main gaps, to which I will add a fifth. First, the summit failed to address the emissions gap, or the distance between greenhouse gas emission cuts agreed to in Paris and actual current emission levels which we know are rising and not falling as they're supposed to be. Then there is the production gap, or the gap between the Paris goals and emissions locked in by the current levels of mining and drilling of just 10 coal, oil, and gas-rich countries. Next up, the finance gap, or the amount of money needed to shift the planet from fossil fuels and the paltry bit that's actually already been committed to date. And the fourth gap is the ambition gap, also known as we're not even trying to fix any of the gaps between the goals countries set in the Paris Agreement and what actually needs to be done. Well, the fifth and final gap, and I think the biggest gap, well, I call that the morality gap. That's the distance between actions founded on the fundamental principles of right conduct compared to those based on legalities, enactment, or custom. Clearly, legal issues and economic customs at COP25 were important and are important parts of the discourse. But allowing them to stop us from doing what is fundamentally, indisputably correct? Well, the gap is of yawning proportions. The summit, said The Nation magazine, was business as usual pettiness, politicking, game playing, and obstructive deceptions inside the negotiating rooms, while the world-shaking urgency of the crisis played out everywhere outside. Though more symbolic than impactful, cocktail receptions, dying decorative plants, plastic bags, bureaucraties, and the unimaginably blockhead suggestion that riotous youth be relegated to their own venue in Glasgow at the upcoming COP26, that will cast a shadow over this summit's morality gap equally, if not more, than allowing big emitter obfuscation. Sure, the organizers, well, they let Greta take the stage, which she did to thunderous applause, but corral the very protesters whose dissent she represents? Well, that tells us that only those who play the rules, created by the folks who got us into the bind in the first place, only they will be tolerated. The summit told us, in effect, it would listen to the polluters, but not the people. Well, there's no doubt about this. But clear-eyed analysts in the alternative and mainstream press alike exposed the lack of progress at COP25 for what it was, the willful sedition of the summit's goals by big emitters, particularly the United States, China, Saudi Arabia, and most stunningly, Australia, which is literally on fire. COP25 did approve a meek exculpatory statement that Paris commitments are intended to represent a progression towards stronger ambition over time. That it surely did. Said Kema Vera of Oxfam International though, the world is screaming out for action, but this summit responded with a whisper. And now we wait while the COP takes a gap year. Postscript, for my money, the Nation Magazine COP25 summary was the very best, but check out the youth angle in Vice, it's pretty good as well. And the Guardian, as always, 
is also very good. Well, moving along, Senator Cory Booker introduced a bill this week in the U.S. Senate uh, aiming to radically reform the animal agricultural system in the United States by putting small and independent producers, that's small farmers, rural communities and consumers first. His Farm System Reform Act would halt construction of new concentrated animal feeding operations, those are called CAFOs, and phase out all large CAFOs by the year 2040. At the same time, his bill would hold corporate meat packers, that's the big guys, accountable for environmental degradation and farmer exploitation. Uh, it will also address meat packer price collusion and other anti-competitive activities while reviving fair market mechanisms and country of origin labeling for beef, pork, and dairy products. This is a big deal sustainability-wise as commercial agriculture at the scale of CAFOs serves neither our health, our wondrous small farmers, or rural community vibrancy all that much. Booker's $100 billion plan would end large-scale animal agriculture over 10 years. That'd be farms with over 700 dairy cattle. <laughs> That's big. Uh, 2,500 hogs or 82,000 laying hens uh, all by the year 2040. The deal is, sadly, quite sadly, dead before arrival in the Senate. It has little to zero chance of passing the Republican-controlled House it is nonetheless a shining example of what could be done and what really frankly needs to be done to create more vibrant rural communities, uh, safeguard our small farmers and raise their incomes quite frankly, and have a more ecologically oriented farm sector. Now, some critics worry that doing away with big meat producers would affect meat protein availability in the markets. Well, not really. As it stands now, America eats far too much protein and far too much meat-based protein. Uh, get this, the average adult male in the United States needs about 55 grams of protein a day, women about 45 grams. That's two to two and a half palm-sized portions of meat, fish, tofu, nuts, or pulses, you know, like lentils, every day. Well, now consider this. The average American eats 101 kilos, that's about 220 pounds of red meat and poultry a year. That's kind of incredible. That's, that's 10 ounces a day or 280 grams a day, over five times the recommended amount. Now, without going into all the details, America is basically pissing away four times more expensive protein each day than it actually retains. Uh, that's not so smart. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the carbon. If 27 kilos of carbon is produced for each kilo of red meat, total red meat consumption related to carbon is 2,727 kilos per person every year. Now, if all Americans ate the recommended average amount of protein, or 55 grams a day, all in red meat, they would produce 524 kilos of carbon a year, or about 2,185 kilos less carbon than they eat now given the average amount of red meat that they do eat. The total carbon savings for not peeing away uh, protein would be 721 million metric tons a year. Or just for good measure, the weight of about 360 million male rhinos in their prime. Now stimulating, and stimulating vibrant small farms and rural communities Seems like just a bonus, right? Oh, and a double bonus. If you choose to eat one quarter of the red meat that most Americans do eat today, 
you would save about $1,400 a year on average. And if you save this much each year, and this is the finance person and me coming up, if you saved that much each year and invested it every year for 10 years, you would net an incredible $180,000 at the end of those 10 years. Now that's based on a 5.25% average return compounded return. Well, moving right along, a few weeks ago, This Week in Sustainability reported Chuck Schumer, Democrat minority leader in the U.S. Senate, was going to fast track an electric vehicle support bill. Now, the bill was a follow-on from one that got started in the Obama administration, an initiative to stimulate electric vehicle production and sales. Now, the bill was to provide cash vouchers of up to $7,000 towards an individual's purchase of an electric vehicle uh, with the goal of putting some 63 million of them on US roads. Well, that's a lot of EVs, electric vehicles, and a lot less carbon in the air, nearly 290 million tons a year less. Now that's pretty incredible. But over the life of the subsidized EVs, it was gonna be 5.7 trillion pounds less of carbon. Now, the bill was intended to help fund car manufacturers get their electrical vehicle production up to scale, get them some fit efficiencies, make them more competitive. But once a manufacturer reached a couple hundred thousand units of sales annually, they were deemed to have that scale and wouldn't be eligible for the subsidies. This year, both GM, General Motors, and Tesla reached that unit threshold. Schumer's bill, in addition to supporting other manufacturers, would continue subsidies to these two market leaders to ensure their competitive position against European and Asian car firms that are rapidly investing in electric vehicle production. <laughs> but not so fast, not so fast, said the scorched earth Trump administration. Uh, why should we, they said, uh, help reduce carbon if the climate crisis doesn't exist? And, and more to the point uh, of their politics of grudge, why should we help rich Californians and Tesla? said Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from Michigan. I'm not sure why the Trump White House has such an extreme resistance to this bill. Why, why, she asked, would the White House want to stop jobs from being created and deter the future, obvious future of the auto industry? My take, who cares if Elon Musk gets a little bit richer? Unlike other so-called industry leaders, Tesla's all about climate change and all about having a future, but not just their own. Now, I want to thank Bloomberg uh, for breaking this story and for Electrek for its elaboration. You can check out Electrek, which breaks news about Tesla, EVs, and green energy at electric.co, E-L-E-C-T-R-E-K.co. Well, moving right along, this week, Tara Stowinski, the CEO and Chief Scientific Officer of the Diane uh, Fossey Gorilla Fund, reported some very happy news. The Eastern African Mountain Gorilla population is growing. Those are the big guys that are all furry and black and look just beautiful. Well, anyways, their numbers have been rising since the 1980s when there was just uh, 240 of them. And they're still not clear of extinction, but they have reached a population of 1,063. Wow, it's over 1,000. Uh, the gorilla's population had dwindled prior uh, to these gains due to lost habitat, you know, people taking over the forest, hunting, and I don't get who is so twisted to hunt a gorilla, uh, disease and other threats. Now, over the three decades of extreme conservation by the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund and others, of course, um, 
uh, involving day-to-day -day protection of gorilla families uh, has really helped the gorilla numbers grow. This is important conservation work. Now, the wild gorilla populations still have a ways to go, but this is some fantastic, I mean, really exciting, positive news. Now, moving right along, as many regular uh, viewers of the Sustainable Century know, big finance is among my favorite targets of critical ridicule. They deserve it, and they deserve it big. Now, that said, and if nothing else, the Sustainable Century is committed to evidence-based truths. And the truth is, there are glimmers of hope for finance meaningfully addressing the climate change and other pressing sustainability issues. There were a few announcements this week uh, spreading a bit of much-needed light on the limpid COP25 summit. A few uh, dim rays of finance trying to do the right thing. Uh, first, 16 asset owners committed to the UN Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance under the Principles for Responsible Investment, that's the PRI, uh, was announced. Uh, these investors are going to work towards net zero uh, carbon emissions across their entire portfolio by 2050. Well, that's pretty good. Next, and as reported in This Week in Sustainability last week, over 600 investors have joined the Global Investor Statement uh, to governments on climate action, representing well over $37 trillion in assets. And the much applauded news? Goldman Sachs announced it will not bankroll any new Arctic oil drilling. The bank also hopes to convince other big finance companies to stop financing more fossil fuel as well. This week, Liberty Mutual Insurance Company became one of the first big U.S. insurers to announce it would stop aiding coal enterprises. Uh, that's investing in them and providing them insurance. The European Investment Bank announced, again reported in This Week in Sustainability, that it was out of the fossil fuel finance business. An activist said this week the Swiss Central Bank was close to taking similar action. Now, I'm not saying any of this is bad news. Far from it. It's all good. But as reported extensively in the Sustainable Century and elsewhere, of course, in many other media, both the quality and quantity of these commitments are, in a word, underwhelming, or maybe just not to be trusted fully at this point. Well, to claim $37 billion is actually pressing open the doors of meaningful change, well, that would be a disgrace to the intelligence of the protesters who were left outside the very doors that slammed shut between their hopes and the financiers on the inside at COP25 this past week. Let's face it, few of these billion dollars in assets have any real or material impact on the sustainability trifecta of climate biodiversity and economic justice. Uh, and considering there are some $300 trillion in assets in public markets today, throwing $37 billion against the problem is kind of like spitting into an extreme climate crisis event hurricane. Uh, then there's the more subjective, they just don't get it. The financiers just don't get it problem. Anna Boten, executive chair of Santander Bank, which funded $15 billion in fossil fuel projects in 2016 alone. Well, she took the stage at COP25, for example, to praise herself for balancing customer credit card purchases with carbon offsets. Now, talk about spitting into the wind. She's lucky the protesters were actually locked out of the building at the time of her presentation. And where some banks see risk, Chase Bank sees opportunity. It's become the biggest fossil fuel 
financer in the world and has uh, financed hundreds of billions of dollars of some of the worst, most extreme fossil fuel projects on the earth. They're not decreasing, but dramatically increasing fossil fuel lending since the Paris Accords. If these bankers, said Time Magazine, plugged the money pipeline, the fossil fuel industry would have a hell of a time expanding. Meanwhile, Larry Flint, CEO of BlackRock, the $7 trillion fund manager, well, he should be looking in his rearview mirror these days. There's a posse of Catholic nuns on his trail. The 9,000 nuns of the Sister of Mercy of the Americas is calling on BlackRock to push its investee companies to move faster on emissions reductions. The sisters are unhappy with BlackRock, which has supported a mere six of 52 climate-related resolution at investee company annual shareholder meeting. This is despite Mr. Flint's weepy annual declaration of his, uh, saying, oh, we're gonna do so many good things for sustainability and for our stakeholders as opposed to just our shareholders. Well, without going down BlackRock's long, deep, and mucky rabbit hole, the company said it spoke to some 370 companies on environmental matters and, where relevant, voted for uh, shareholder climate-related proposals. My question, divestment. Oh, but I digress. Talking to other corporate executives with equally spanky suits always works better than the direct threat of divestment. Like the nationalization of a couple big oil companies, something that the sustainable century advocates, big finance only has to divest loudly and strategically and a couple times, crippling one or two companies to make its point and to change behavior uh, rather quickly, I suspect. Given banks make money on thousands of other things besides fossil fuels, and, and given that they're filled with really smart, if often commercially amoral folk, they can easily make up the difference a divestment or two would affect on their quarterly return. Like most activists, I have no faith in the current value set of most financiers. I do, however, have faith in their capacity, their creativity, and their innovation. Uh, set in the right direction, big finance could provide much more than just this glimmer of hope. They could truly offer up the very rays of light we've been searching for. The question is, will they find their humanity and step up? Now for the last word in This Week in Sustainability. It comes from Yeb Sano. Said Yeb at COP25, we are tired of dishonest optimism. Yeb is a self-proclaimed recovering climate negotiator and is now executive director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. Bless you, Yeb. Bless you and your work. Bless Greenpeace too and may your God or gods or any other gods, great and small, guide and protect you. Well, that's a wrap for this week in sustainability. But remember, if you aspire to have more sustainability in your life, check out the Sustainable Century Network at thesustainablecentury.net for podcasts and articles on sustainability news, opinion, lifestyle, do-it-yourself ideas, and a whole heck of a lot more. Also, we want to remind you to listen to the Sustainable Century podcast. This week, you can listen to an incredible podcast with localist and sustainable food expert Jen DeRose from Known and Grown out of St. Louis, Missouri. And don't forget to reserve your place for our upcoming webinar, How to Choose a Sustainability-Minded Financial Advisor. That's coming up in late January. Look for more information this month on our website, thesustainablecentury.net. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, your host of This Week in Sustainability. Thanks again, and remember, it's up to you. It's up to all of us to make this the sustainable century. Thanks for listening.